Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. This season, we're discussing the ways critical race theory interacts with Asian American Christianity. Join us each week for a conversation about race and grace. I'm Daniel Lee. And I'm Alex Jun. We are your hosts. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to another season of Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Lee, Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry. Our topic this season is race and grace, critical race theory in Asian American Christianity. This season is made up of a series of conversations with my friend and neighbor, Dr. Alex Jun, professor of higher education at Azusa Pacific University. This episode, we're going to talk about cancel culture. Hey, Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Let's get started right away. So what is cancel culture? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Cancel culture seems to be in vogue now, at least the term, but the thought that a community, especially online, decides to shun certain individuals in protest to some of the things that have been stated, uh, that have been identified as being quite offensive. You see people's name and associations, any sort of companies that they're um, working with, anyone else who's associated with them getting called out. Um, And you see an attempt at erasure for certain personalities, usually someone famous. Let's think about how this connects with how we should be as Christians. People would say, cancel culture is really just not Christian because as Christians, We should not protest. That's not what we do as Christians. Well, we can kind of start there, thinking about the idea of protesting something uh, politically or or socially and our connection to our Christian commitments. Yeah. Interesting when we talk about uh, Christians being against cancel culture. And if you will allow me for a minute, I want to say Christianity and the Church of Jesus has the ultimate cancel culture. I mean, it's our Lord and Savior canceled my debts, canceled our debts, <laughs> Amen. And amen. has forgiven us of our sins and remembers only the good that we've done, right? But it's not the work we've done, it's the work that our Savior has done. So just want to frame it to say, I am not against cancel culture, I embrace cancel culture in the church in this sense. But at the same time, It's a balance between can we be honest and recognize, in my example, that I have failings and shortcomings and sins. We all do. And we needed a Messiah to cancel those debts. It's not salvation by work, right? So it's not by what I've done that saves me. So I think it's important to set the framework in this sense for me, because I want to say that this type of cancel culture, sort of the messianic cancel culture, is fundamentally different from what a worldly understanding of culture, cancel culture is that we're experiencing. I think using that example, I mean, what's happening there is that Jesus is giving us multiple, uh, you know, offering forgiveness so that we are not just defined by our sins. We are forgiven so that we can have a voice. So there's this idea of forgiveness, idea of grace. I I think it's interesting because people are saying that that's because Christianity is all about forgiveness, second chances, being gracious to each other. We shouldn't think about cancer culture that way. And fundamentally, 
in that sense, cancel culture is not Christian. But as you reminded me, which I don't know why I forgot, the idea of a, because pro- we're both reformed, Protestant identity is part of cancel, cancel culture, right? Protestant identity is part of protest, oh, yeah. fundamentally. Absolutely. So when Christians say that I'm against protests, uh, my first question to uh, any evangelical Christian is, are you Roman Catholic? Because as far as I know, Roman Catholics are the only ones who were not Protestants, right? We fundamentally recognize the importance of protests, 95 Thesis on Wittenberg Wall. You know, there's lots of examples of protests throughout the history of the church and the founders of Protestant denominations over the centuries. It absolutely is rooted in protest. Another example, as I think about sort of a modern version of protest is uh, when people say things like, well, you know, you should obey the authorities that are in place because that's biblical and scriptural. And um, there's a memory, a history that is still taught today and celebrated about a protest that occurred where there was violence and destruction of property because of the, the fundamental disagreement with this oppressive regime. Even with armed guards who were trying to protect what was theirs, property and life, it was the Boston Tea Party. (laughs) And we celebrate this and we say, oh, this is a wonderful moment for the history of this growing nation. (laughs) Like it was rooted in protest. It was against the the authorities in power, Mm. right? Those militarized people representing the government. And it was rejected. And then is it the East Indian Trading Company? All the tea, all the products destroyed. Property was destroyed in the midst of this protest. Why is it that we celebrate the Boston Tea Party, but we talk and criticize all other forms of protest that destroys property and and is up in arms against the government and against those in uniform, right? Inconsistency at best, short memory at best. I think it's so interesting. Somebody was saying that... uh... Isn't that weird, the fact that when Americans watch Star Wars, they always think of themselves as the rebels. I'm like, wait a minute, but we are like, we are this militaristic empire around the country. And we say, why do we not see ourselves as part of the dark side and and part of the empire? Because That's that's literally what's happening around the world. But we say, oh, no, we are the resistance. We are the rebels. We are we are on the corner. We're fighting this evil empire. I'm thinking. What empire are we talking about? We, it's almost as though we have this thing stuck in our minds to think that we're always in this revolutionary mindset. We're feeble and we're the underdogs when in fact that's not true, right? That's beautiful. That's exactly right. And so for a, the vast majority of American Christians, those of us who are listening to this, feel a threat in the air because we think that uh, th- something that we need to fight against the evils in, in society. And it turns out It just might be American, this very truncated version of the gospel of American Christianity um, that's wedded itself to power and dominance. Mm. That's the empire. And so if you can't say Merry Christmas anymore, or we're not going to be able to celebrate our holidays, uh, then we feel like we're under threat. Right. I can't use the bathrooms I used to use. I can't, you know, I can't use the terms of how I refer to other people the way I used to. And I feel like I'm under threat rather than seeing us as the the scrappy insurgents. 
we're actually the empire. <laughs> I think it's an important distinction to make, but that speaks into a steady diet and education of a triumphalistic, victorious Christianity that is actually not biblical. When Jesus right, right. says, in this world, there will be trouble. Rarely does, does our Savior talk about, in this world, you will have all power and dominion on earth to run structures and organizations in a Christian way. It's actually the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're so used to think about uh, our Christianity with so much power and privilege as a norm that if we lose any of it, we think that's persecution. And, you know, through a history, you know, theologians would say that whenever the church has had worldly power, it has gone bad for the church. Like it corrupts us, right? Because we, we cannot witness properly when you're, when you're threatening people by killing them, right? Or, or by, you know, talking about uh, economic or political dominance. It, it, the gospel just can't be shared that way because you can't say here is a peaceful, uh, gentle savior that might take over your culture, your way of life, your economic system, your political system. That's right. That's right. So it, when we think about cancel culture, it's really a form of accountability to be able to call out, to call in uh, folks who are, are seeing things from a very dominant lens, uncritical, unexamined. And so in that sense, it could be helpful. Now, of course, there's this sort of group mentality that sort of takes over and people jump on the bandwagon and, and want to add insult to injury. But I think at its fundamental root, what's happening, especially where Christians have a hard time hearing this, is all of my favorite heroes, those whom I've loved and, and, and appreciated and learned from, right? I mean, it's not hagiography. We're not looking at creating sainthood for them, right? Yeah. They were flawed individuals that I think we're trying to finally recognize a balance in the approach. Uh, it's not necessarily canceling. My argument is it's showing balance for some of our heroes. And we need to be very careful of our heroes. And again, cancel culture and scripture. I don't think the Bible sugarcoats anything that happens in scripture. All the examples of our quote unquote heroes of the faith, right? So problematic. Look at King David rapes Bathsheba and murders her husband Uriah. Yet he's called a man after God's own heart. Abraham betrays his wife, yet called the father of nations. Plenty of examples in scripture, replete with examples of the entirety of our broken humanity that God continues to use. Wait a minute, Alex. Are you saying the fact that these men and women of God are all fallen people? Like Noah and, I mean, you know, David, a man after God's own heart. I mean, you know, I think this is where I always tell people like, Sunday school versions of the Bible stories aren't really beneficial. You want to outgrow them at some point and say, this is actually not what you think it is. These aren't great people. We have a great God. And that distinction is actually not a minor distinction. It's a significant distinction. I mean, once again, for us who are, who are reform oriented, I think, I mean, you don't have to be reformed, but the idea of total depravity, total depravity is a way of kind of giving more glory to God and showing the extent of God's salvific power. We're not talking about the fact that boohoo were terrible. We're talking about the fact that this is a reality. Or, I mean, I think about it in terms of how Lutherans would talk about it. They talk about Simu uh, Eustace's peccator, right? So simultaneously justified and sinner. Look, you are righteous in Christ, but it doesn't mean the fact that your fallenness has disappeared somehow. We're simultaneously both because in Christ, 
we are righteous, but in of ourselves, I mean, it's not like we're going to just automatically change. Sometimes in our maturity, I think we become almost sophisticated sinners in a sense, and not just become less of a sinner. Here's where it gets really challenging is, uh, what do we do with someone like Jonathan Edwards um, or other quote unquote heroes of the faith in the past? More connected to my denomination is J. Gratian Machen, uh, another example of folks who are very problematic in their views of race and of women and enslaved Africans, owned other human beings. But mm -hmm. we continue to only focus on the good that they did. And every time you try to mention some balance of who they were, uh, you feel like, oh, you're canceling them. This is part of the culture. Like, actually, it's biblical. If, uh, right, I mean, if scripture saw it fit to include the entirety of people's stories to highlight God's work through flawed humanity, then we should be able to demonstrate that as well, to show God working despite their utter brokenness and their sinfulness, rather than sugarcoat mm. it and only focus on the things that, they did that was good perhaps they yeah. didn't even mean to do well <laughs> no this is this is a great point some people have said look you're erasing history right you're you're rewriting history you know these uh we need to remember the past therefore if we get rid of monuments then we will erase the past and we will no longer know ourselves or no longer remember even the terrible things I mean, that's a common thing that people yeah, say right. whenever we see monuments go down, you say, oh, my gosh, we're erasing history. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, to this day in Germany, as far as I know, there is no Adolf Hitler high school. I don't think there are any <laughs> statues of Hitler. Can you imagine? Right. I mean, yes. Go to the South here in the United States or go to any institution with Junipero Serra. You know <laughs> what it looks like if you're the minoritized and the oppressed. But there are no statues of Mussolini and Hitler in their respective countries. And yet we have not forgotten the atrocities of what they've hmm. done. So you're telling me that the statue alone will erase them? I don't think so. What's yeah. fundamental when we get to the root of when these statues, for example, started to appear, I think that's important in terms of the retelling. And this goes back to critical race theories, one of the tenets of counter stories, right? Mm. The dominant narrative wanted to create a certain type of image, a certain type of history. And so the statues of some significantly racist individuals appeared at the time of civil rights, or it appeared at times where there was a tremendous uh, concern along social justice realms or along the lines of uh, racial justice advocacy. That's when the statues started to appear. Yeah. Um, it's like, if you hate Coca-Cola, you have the freedom to drink Pepsi or Coca-Cola, but for you to take a can of Pepsi into the Coca-Cola boardroom, that is a statement you're trying to make. <laughs> and then people yeah. are like, hey, this is inappropriate on a multitude of levels. And you say, oh, where's my freedom? Where's my freedom? Where you were very intentional in the work that you did. Even if you weren't intentional, we know from critical race theory, intent versus impact, right? Mm. What you did is very impactful in a negative way. That, that's an important point. You know, we talk about in critical race theory 
intent versus impact. Can you explain that more? Just the relationship between the two, because people talk about, sometimes people will say, well, look, I didn't mean it that way. I've had the best intentions. So why am I being critiqued for my great intentions? Yeah, that's good. Uh, what's the old saying that the, the road to destruction is paved with good intentions, right? That's not critical <laughs> race theory, but it's nevertheless still true. Mm. A simple example that I always use, I travel a lot and, you know, someone takes an overnight bag and they put it in the overhead bin and it's too heavy. It falls on me, right? So it falls on me and I'm in pain. Now, did the person willfully, maliciously want this to fall on my head? Maybe, probably not. But if their response is, well, hey, I didn't mean to do it. Rather than recognizing the impact, they focused on the intent. They focused on their own selves. And that's the mm -hmm. problem. If you hurt someone, you have to say, I'm sorry, and recognize what you did. Not reshift the conversation and focus on your intent. You know, that's just recentering yourself. I mean, that's what we see when we talk about a very white normative understanding of racial, racial dialogue, when someone says, what you did hurt me, rather than focusing on that, on the in impact, they say, well, I never meant to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is actually, I mean, once again, whatever, whoever is in privilege, right? Privilege in multiple ways. There's a common critique of people who say, if any of you were offended uh, by what I did, I am truly sorry. And people say, wait a minute, that's not an apology. Like, can you explain a little bit in terms of why people get so upset about that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it sounds like an apology, but it has never addressed the specific impact of what happened, nor does it address the intent, but it's not specific enough to the hurt and the pain that actually occurred, right? So outside of our conversation with critical race theory, I think even for quote unquote, regular apologies in the church, we need to learn what true confession and true repentance is, right? It's not just feeling bad, right? This is a classic argument for folks who don't understand confession and repentance. Feeling bad about something you did, feeling guilty about what you did is not confession and that's not repentance. So we can learn from scripture of examples of what true confession and true repentance can be. But again, I wanna take it another direction and look at even modern day heroes, right? The Jerry Falwell Jr., Franklin Graham, Josh McDowell, the list goes on and on and on. And people wanna preserve and protect them in their communities to say, hey, we, this is the danger of cancel culture. There has to be some form of accountability, right? Mm -hmm. That the impact of what they're saying needs to be addressed. But can I say one other thing? Eventually, we also have to address your intent. Maybe the first time or second time, I'll give you a pass. You didn't know, completely unaware, unconscious, okay. Second time, third time, okay. At what point am I able to have an honest conversation with you to say, at this point, it has to be intent because you can't keep claiming ignorance. You can't keep saying, I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, whenever I teach leader, I, I kind of point out the fact that, look, his anti-Semitic comments, like, you know, you can say he's a he's a man of his, I say his time or whatever, but oh. I have to basically flesh that out and say, look, this is a serious problem. Now, it doesn't mean that you be ignore all of what he taught, but how do we kind of take that into consideration and say and critique him rightly when we need to? Or I think in some of the circles that I, in theology circles, people talk about uh, John Howard Yoder. A Mennonite theologian who basically has done some horrific kind of sexual assault against women. And the question is, 
uh, you know, as somebody who is basically teaching peace, like, what does it mean? How, you know, can we be legitimately teach him and uh, use his books? And what does it look like? I think that's all part of it. Like, how do we make sure that we, there's accountability? There's actually a, a way in which we take these things lightly. It's, it's not just about the fact that people are, oh, with their sensitive feelings getting hurt. This, this is a real thing that's happening. And we have to, we have to take responsibility for yeah. that. I think of modern day examples on both sides, all sides of people trying to cancel each other. Martin Luther King, wonderful example, right? Reverend Dr. King, people love to, to quote King, a very domesticated, softened version uh, of some of uh, Dr. King's work. And in other circles, people love to talk about the flaws in, in his humanity, uh, the mm -hmm. extramarital affairs uh, you know, and such, and to say, so for those reasons, because he was in moral failing, we should cancel him. Right, the very people who are critical of cancel culture are quick to cancel uh, Martin Luther King. Again, I'd stress the importance of a balanced approach, or at least consistency, in our application. I'm not exactly ready to cancel someone like Jonathan Edwards if he was a quote-unquote man of his time, as you were saying. Right, I get it. In, in those days my assumption would be it's not just one or two people. It was probably in the water. Everybody was racist in the sense mm. that everybody benefited from racial policies. You know, I like golfing. I'm into uh, golfing in the pandemic. It's, it's come back for me and my family, which is wonderful. But I started watching like old PGA tournaments, right? Back in the day, uh, in the 50s and 60s. And then I paused and I thought, geez, they're, that's right. They're playing on courses that ethnic minorities were forbidden hmm. by law to play in. And yeah. we still celebrate them and say, look at all these victories. I'm like, imagine if you had players of color playing against you. I don't know <laughs> if you'd have that many victories. <laughs> so yeah, I love to mess up stories like that to say, let's tell the whole picture. I'm not gonna take away their the victories and all their Ws, but I mean, I think they all deserve asterisks by their names. You know, what we're talking about is uh, cultural significance of monuments or naming things after somebody. And then they're actually, that functions very differently than like history books or even like, uh, you know, museums in a sense. Yeah. They actually mean different things. We're not trying to valorize who they are. They're saying, we want to remember who they are. We can learn about the fact that they're mixed back. They're not, they're not just purely heroes. It's not a kind of, once again, hagiographic account of these people. We're saying, look, they're a mixed bag. And what we don't want to do is make them into perfect heroes and put them on humongous pedestals and have larger than life uh, statues made of them. And that's that's not erasing history. That's remembering history differently, in a sense, that's right? right? There's that's a power right. in, in relation to knowledge that we're talking about. Right. We're finally at a day and age where the counter stories, those that were minoritized, the stories that have been forgotten or erased are finally being able uh, to have the light of day. And these stories are being told. Are they as flawed as everyone else in positions of dominance? Sure, I'd imagine. They didn't have the platform, so they may not have done as much writing, so we don't have the histories. But sure, if I believe in a doctrine of total depravity, everyone is broken and in need of repair. But that doesn't deny the opportunity for certain folks who have long been erased to finally have a story to tell. And it can come in monuments, it can come in books, it can come in a variety of things.
subject a little bit and talk about uh, reverse racism. So people will say, wait a minute, you know what's happening? This is reverse racism, right? Uh, and, and of course, some people have made a distinction between prejudice versus uh, racism yeah. and, and what racism really is. But can you kind of break down a little bit why that the term reverse, reverse racism is, uh, is fraught? It's actually not as simple as, well, look, now the tables are turned and it's simply now it's, you know, it's being people who are a majority or white people who are being oppressed. Yeah, yeah. There's so many um, examples come to mind for me. Uh, we'd have to probably wrestle with the first idea of system versus individual, right? That racism, sexism, uh, lots of other discriminatory practices, it's rooted in power. So one distinction that I like to make is the difference between racism and prejudice. Racism is prejudice multiplied by power, right? So you can be prejudicial against others, but you're not in a position of power, right? Once we have the ability to make laws and policies based largely on our own prejudice, then that's how we have racist policies. Right? So I think that's an important distinction. People may disagree with it, but that's part of the challenge with critical race theory is to recognize the systems and the laws that are in place that solidify prejudicial um, outlooks toward others. Right. We're talking about government power. We're talking about legal system. We're talking about our media system. We're talking about financial system. We're talking about all those structures of our society that function. That we're not talking about just individuals. So that's a, that's a huge distinction, right? Yeah. Let's give another example when we talk about systems versus individuals. And I think for folks who reject the premise of systemic anything, systemic racism, uh, since we're talking about race right now and critical race theory, and you say it's purely individual, the reality is when I hear people making that argument, you fundamentally do believe in systems. It's just not along the lines of race. So good Christians who pull their kids out of public school because science and new ageism is everywhere, right? It's in the classroom, it's in the politics. Um, so you do believe in systems. Hmm. It just happens to be against what your, your personal position is. That's why we're pulling people out of school because they say the school system, how they treat sex and how we look at politics is completely run amok. It's in the media. So we do recognize systems. It's not individual. But when it comes to race, all of a sudden we revert back to individualism. So that, that's problematic. But the idea of reverse racism, we can talk about that as well. If we're talking about positions of power, and laws are then created to reinforce my own prejudice, then that's racism. But to simply say people who were not in power now have a voice because we had a black president or because we know of certain individuals of color who have quote unquote made it in society, the idea that there's a reverse racism has not fully addressed power. Uh, the example that comes to mind, if I think about a place like South Korea, uh, they have policies in place because they don't want people, they don't want non-Koreans in certain spaces. So they have a Korean only policy. I don't know where they are today, but I remember reading these articles along the, the 38th parallel where a lot of the military are. 
They say, if you can't speak Korean, we don't want you to come in here. They didn't want people fighting, GIs getting drunk and fighting and chasing uh, some of the patrons around, right? So that was mm. a policy. It was a fundamentally racist policy to deny non-Koreans, even if they spoke Korean, I'd imagine it'd be a problem, right? But it feeds some of your own xenophobia in South Korea. So the example is not just in North America and it's not just against white people, right? It's the dominant culture that enacts power. Uh, one of the things that I try to really point out is that when we talk about systems, we're talking about historically embedded systems. I mean, these systems have been around for a long time. We're talking about a particular history and the meaning and weight of these ideas historically, right? The fact that it means something like, for example, like blackface means something because there's a long history of something. Yellow payroll means something or even like anti-Asian uh, anti-Asian kind of stereotypes mean something because there's a long history of these things. And that history uh, has power, not just individually, even if you don't know about the history, like it actually has as a greater impact than just like something that's novel. Yeah, that's right. And we are continuing to live in the midst of decisions that were made, the doctrine of discovery, the, the land theft, all of us have benefited from this. We're not a nation of immigrants, right? Uh, we're a nation of uh, uh, settler colonials, right? And we have to recognize that and we can all benefit from that. We can get to deeper discussion about how that gets rectified but we're still arguing almost, I feel like it's a remedial conversation with people uh, because they, some people continue to refuse to recognize what we just said. The GI Bill, another great example as an educator, I see the benefits for the GI Bill for um, post-war veterans returning from service who were low income, maybe first generation college, working class families, but by and large, they were white men. It was not for service people of color, right? And so the benefits that the government granted to these folks, albeit for their service, led to much more reduced education, home loans, 0% home loans, lots of other benefits to get people going in society. And that accumulated wealth that benefited some at the exclusion of others, we continue to see the fruit that was born from that root system that was fundamentally racist. And people talk about the fact that, uh, in, I mean, Southern California, I mean, that the GIs that came out here with, with the GI, lo you know, GI loan, you know, going to education, they say, well, look, I worked hard. When in fact, there was this governmental support. And uh, at the same time, people of color weren't, uh, weren't getting that same support. Even if they were able to work hard, even if they were able to study, they weren't able to get that support. I think there's this myth of individualism, the fact that I did this, when in fact there were all the systems that were benefiting some people and not others. And again, it, it, those who are critical of government handouts, if you will, you wanna look at their own family history to say, I think grandfather who came back from the <laughs> war was the biggest beneficiary of government handouts. Right? Mm. So I don't know how you can close the door behind you. That does not mean that I'm you know, anti-military. Right. I just, again, it's a balanced story, not just yeah. one dominant narrative. Can I give one other example that comes to yeah, mind? Ahead, that I, I, social media and a young 
black Facebook friend, a uh, young man was saying, I don't know how to swim, but I want to learn to swim. And his comment was, any other black folks out here like wanting to learn how to swim? And it was a fascinating mm. conversation. Perhaps he was too young to recognize some of the fundamental structural racist policies that were in place, right? This right, takes right. us to before civil rights where black folks, citizens were denied access into swimming pools. Right, the famous story of famous Sammy Davis Jr. because he was famous was granted access into one of the pools in Vegas, um, and then they drained the pool after he went swimming. Um, oh but all these other stories of people just denied access to public uh, swimming pools, and then uh, post civil rights, right? What did this? What did certain cities do? Rather than having integration to have black children swimming in the pools with white children, they closed the the swimming pools down. Yeah. And you see this rise of private uh, clubs and organizations, right? So the public pools started to uh, become more dilapidated and fall apart. And these are decisions that individual city halls would make, right? And so if there's a reason why people think that it's genetic or something that Black people don't swim, it's actually rooted in racist policies. Right. So easily we can think about things in terms of in terms of purely culture, right? As though, because if we have no history, if we have no structure, then it must be your culture. It must be genes. It must be something with wrong with you. In That's, a sense, right. Right? That's right. Uh, and not something that actually is part of what's happening in society. I mean, there's a, such, a, such a deeply rooted blind spot to so, much, uh, so many Americans and how we think about liberal individualism that's so deeply rooted in how we think about the world that we, we just can't see certain things. As you kind of close up this conversation, I want to talk about this thing. Obviously, cancel culture is a mixed bag. It's not like it's perfect, right? So we're not saying that every aspect of cancel culture is good. But I mean, obviously, there are obvious abuses. There are things that are, I think, toxic as well. People are just, you know, what I like to say is almost like they want to out-progressive each other. Like, you know what's wrong? Let me give you another way this person is toxic. Just digging up everything that possible. So we're not saying all these things are great. We're talking about a bigger picture of how, how and, and the histor historical and structural context of how cancel, cancel culture can function. Yes, that's right. And by and large, our modern 21st century version of cancel culture, I feel like it's primarily via social media, and it's still individual. We're not mm. talking about systems that are in place, right? Uh, the ultimate cancel culture, we talked about the PAGE Act on our one of our previous episodes, right? Uh, the oh, ultimate yeah. cancel culture is for the US government to only allow Chinese men to come work as laborers, yeah. but not to allow women to come to procreate and to, to have more families uh, Chinese American families here in the United States. The Anti-Chinese Immigration Act was a government-sponsored cancel <laughs> culture, yeah. right? Um, and, right? And modern day, the Muslim ban, another example, mm. right? Yeah. Um, children in cages, some of our uh, immigration policy, it's another example of this. And mm. at the time of this recording, right, we're in the midst of um, the US military pulling out of Afghanistan, Lots of uh, um, Afghan refugees seeking asylum in, in the United States, even here in California, and to deny them access is another form of government-sponsored cancel culture. But we don't think of it in those terms. We still think so individualistically, rather than seeing a broader framework of what has already been a form of cancel culture multiplied by power. Right.
And because we erase history, we think, why are these people coming? Like, we, we, if we weren't there for 10 years, right? Well, no, not 10 years, like 20 years. Without that history, it's almost incomprehensible. These random people are coming over and, and wanting to live in the U.S. Why don't they actually follow the process and go immigrate over like everybody else or whatever? But without that, without what you're talking about in terms of history, the historical structure, it's literally impossible to understand what, what we're talking about. That's right. And that's why we continue to tell stories, the dominant narrative of someone like Thomas Jefferson and his quote unquote mistress, Sally Hemings, someone who was an mm. enslaved African and forced into uh, sex, right? Like she had a choice. And then we paint mm. this picture to say that it was uh, some sort of love affair. I mean, it is complex and it is dirty. But the retelling of that story, the only thing that's more problematic is when you introduce alternative, what quote unquote alternative ideas and tell a fuller story of what's going on. People say, oh, you're trying to cancel Thomas Jefferson. Like, no, we're trying to uplift the story of Sally Hemings and what happened to most black women, enslaved African women uh, back in the day and continues to today, even if the laws may have changed. Think about how as Christians, we can so easily have a very superficial way of what it means to be Christian with Christian lingo or Christianese, right? And the fact that the Bible continually calls uh, what we consider to be seemingly good, seemingly spiritual as against God, uh, whether it be in Matthew talking about the fact that, you know, you're hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, outwardly beautiful, but within full of dead, uh, dead bones, or talking about Isaiah 50, not, you know, 558, talking about, is this not the fasting, the spiritual work that I'm, I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, justice, and to set the oppressed free and to break, break every yoke? Uh, or, uh, you know, the, the quote, the MLK kind of quotes. I mean, I like the whole full quote uh, from Amos, because um, people remember, let justice roll like a river mm -hmm. and righteousness like a never failing stream. But they don't, they don't remember the earlier part when God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your, your worship is disgusting to me. I don't want it anymore. Where is the justice? I mean, we like the forgiveness, love and everything else, but we, real, we don't realize the fact that this, uh, these uh, uh, affect, Christian affect that we think about, it's not limited in that way. I think we want to kind of uh, end with this reflection, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Even history, we need to remember the whole story. And we're so selective in our memory, in our collective memory and in our history books. Um, it may be psychologically maybe there's something about wanting to remember only the good and mm -hmm. never remembering the bad and one thought exercise that i'd want to challenge the listeners to is something that a spiritual practice for myself is just sit and wonder when i'm in disagreement with somebody is it possible that that person might be right <laughs> what that person <laughs> is saying they just might be right. And on the flip side, I just might be wrong, right? Sit in that for a minute. It is incredibly humbling and sanctifying to think that I just might be wrong. My position yeah. may be wrong. I think that's an important element uh, to the way we uh, remember stories. When we retell a story, when's the last time, Daniel, you told us, retold the story where you were not either the hero or the victim? Right. 
Rarely do we tell a story where I'm the villain, right? Something went mm. wrong in society, and it was my fault. I did this to them. I hurt them. Yeah. Never tell the story that way. It's our natural sort of psychological sense of protection and um, the sense of uh, safety that we want to retell the story. But that's not the reality. And when we say things like never forget, and we refer to 9-11, but we don't refer to the Capitol riots of January 6th. Hmm. Um, when we talk about 4th of July and we celebrate it, right? Uh, if you're British, right? Um, how offensive it is to say, we defeated you once and we'll defeat you again. And we remind ourselves how we defeated the British. I mean, these days we only celebrate the independence part. But it, it's fascinating how the story just continues to get told in one way. And we like the stories that lift us up. We don't like the stories that bring us down. And my final word is be balanced. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. I mean, that's, that's a reminder for our listeners uh, as, and for myself, for both of us, as we think about what does it mean to follow Christ, uh, Christ who calls us to continual, continual repentance and our journey of sanctification. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. And we'll see you in the next episode. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss race and grace. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.